This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. We actually get into uh, this evening the first judge uh, that we'll look at that, uh, uh, other than the victory song, uh, the story of the judge, it really it covers more than one chapter, one of the more extended coverages of the judges in the book of Judges, and that is, of course, Gideon. And so we are looking at him tonight. What I'd like to do, just give it the length of the passage, being all of chapter 6, instead of reading it and sort of rereading it as we go through it, to just read it as we go through it and study the chapter. So let me go ahead and open us, pray for the Lord's blessing on our time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it yet again on this Lord's Day. And Father, for this book of Judges, for this chapter in particular, we pray that you will uh, give us insight and humble us before it and teach us those things you would have us know. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been on this Judges roller coaster long enough to know that um, we go up and down. And uh, we're, we've been up, and we're about to go down again. Uh, I don't remember if I told you all this last week when, when we were hiking. Barbara and I were hiking to the hike in. Uh, every now and then, you'd come to a very pretty little little area with water would be running there. You'd have a little bridge over it, a little water. It only took about a couple of times with that when I commented on how pretty the bridge was and the little stream was. And Barbara said, yeah, but I've learned when we cross the water, then we're going back uphill. Uh, and that's true, because, of course, the water is in the lowest place. Well, uh, we're about to be going downhill again here in, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, we go into some pretty dire circumstances here. In fact, the description is the longest description uh, just of, of how bad things have been to this point. And in a sense, it's, it's somewhat tragic. It's, it's certainly unfortunate because Israel had had a good relationship with Midian. Uh, in fact, you'll recall when Moses fled Egypt after killing the man and being afraid of Pharaoh, where did he go? Midian. And he, uh, he, he married a Midianite woman. Uh, the daughter of Jethro, the Midianite high priest. And uh, for a time, there were good relationships there between Israel and Midian, but not so now. Uh, in fact, Midian is treating Israel very badly. The relationship has really gone sour. It's the most detailed description so far. And here's what it says, verse 2. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. 
Well, whenever the Israelites plant, planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. So you have this situation uh, each each year where the Midianites, the Amalekites, and others would, would come in and just ravage the land. Anything that Israel had planted, anything that was growing, uh, they would come in. They would come in with their herds, their livestock, and, and they would graze on the land and uh, make off with, with all the stuff in Israel. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, they would come. They would encamp, leave no sustenance for their animals. They'd also leave no sheep, rocks, or donkey. They'd take things with them. And this went on time and again. Uh, and each time it happened, the Israelites had to head for the hills, literally. They had to go up into the mountains and caves to hide out, to try to get away from this this annual plunder and devastation of their land. And they were getting hungry. And they were getting tired of this. But you know, this really is what happens to covenant breakers. God's word said so. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 29 says, You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there shall be no one to help you. And then in verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. These are covenant curses. This is the lot of covenant breakers. And again, this is not just the the ebb and tide of nations and history. The scriptures are very specific. In verse 1, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This was directly the work of the Lord in response to the evil among his people. The very covenant curses he said would happen, happened. They were being robbed blind. They were being plundered, being worked over. And the result, verse 6, Israel was brought very low. You can imagine well, as we go through the rest of the passage, we see what happens and how the, how the Lord responds to this. And the first thing is the Lord reminds them, and he reminds us, of the real need. If, if you were an Israelite, say, well, wait, what do you need? Well, we need somebody to stop these people from plundering our land. We need somebody to stand up to them. We need something to happen here. We're going to starve to death. But is that what they really needed? Notice what happened. Uh, verse 7. When the people of Israel, this is the reminder of the real need. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, which is repeated in verse 6, people cried out for help, and when they did so, verse 7, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Ah, a prophet, just what we needed, right? Uh, somebody said that's you know, like your car breaks down, you call for a mechanic. Uh, and, and you, you, know, you get an accountant. Um, no, no 
no slight toward accountants. That's just not the immediate need, unless you happen to be handy with a wrench and how to fix the car. Uh, yeah, you get a philosopher. Oh, great. Uh, that's not what we needed, Lord. You sent, a, you sent a prophet. What we really need is an army. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And what's worse is what the prophet has to say to them. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. It's not for lack of power on the Lord's part that they're where they are. Verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The real need is not that Israel needs an army. The real need is not that Israel needs deliverance from Midian. The real need is Israel needs deliverance from idols, from their sin. And we've seen that again and again. The problem is not political or military. The problem is a spiritual problem. And what does the Lord do? The first thing he does is to send a prophet to declare to them the word of God. He reminds them that there's no lack of power with the Lord to deliver. The Lord brought them out from the power, from the grip of the mightiest nation on earth. And not only reminding them there's no lack of power, but reminding them that he has delivered them. But the problem is with Israel. And despite his warning, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Uh, and the, the sense there's not so much to be afraid of them, but you don't serve them. You fear the Lord. You don't go fearing these Canaanite deities, Baal and the Shirah. Fear the Lord. But that's not what they did. You've not obeyed my voice. And, you know, that's that's just like them, but it's like us. Lord, I need to be healed. Lord, I need you to provide for me. Lord, I need to give you need, need you to give me guidance in this decision I'm, I'm facing. Lord, I need you to make this pesky co-worker just go away, get transferred to Timbuktu, something, anything. That's what I need, Lord. And the Lord comes back to me and says, what you need is to repent of all of these idols of your heart that are what you think you need when I know your real need. And so this passage serves to remind Israel of the real need. The real need wasn't deliverance from Midian. The real need was deliverance from their sin, deliverance from their idolatry. And the Lord gives them this very stern rebuke. But you've not obeyed my voice. Now, what do you expect at this point? You would expect that the Lord is basically saying, look, it, you know, we've been up and down this roller coaster a few times. I'm off. You're on your own. You can starve to death. That's what we would expect. The Lord says, you have not obeyed my voice. Covenant curses abounding to the chief of sinners. And yet we're in for a surprise. Because what we get is a demonstration of the Lord's amazing grace. We've had a reminder of Israel's real need and ours. But in the face of that, a demonstration of the Lord's amazing grace. We see this in verses 11 and following. As soon as the Lord says, you've not obeyed my voice, the next verse, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. 
you know, we expect God to be out of there. And the first thing he does after saying, you've not obeyed my voice is appear. Shows up under this tree, which belonged to Joash, the Abbey's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. He's down in this vat. Normally they do this in the open air, get the wind to blow the chaff away. So the wheat falls down, they gather the wheat. Well, he's doing this in hiding. Because he's got some wheat, he doesn't want some Midianite raider to come grab it and make off with it. So he's, he's down in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Good question. Uh, that the expression occurs many times in Scripture, and it's often used interchangeably with the Lord himself. That's the case here. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him. Uh, and so on. It goes, you know, it's the Lord speaking to him. It's the angel of the Lord, but it also is the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord said to him, angel of the Lord is the Lord. Some have said it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. And he goes up to him and it's the Lord speaking to him. So the angel of the Lord probably is best understood maybe as an angelic being. But if so, he's so identified with the Lord and so authorized by the Lord that it can also be said it's the Lord speaking. I think it is it's a theophany, a visible manifestation or appearance of God accommodating himself to our humanity, appearing as basically a human, apparently, uh, in order to communicate and speak to us. He could do it other ways, but in this case, he appears as the angel of the Lord. Appears to him and says to him, verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon's threshing out the wheat in hiding for fear of the Midianites. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. You're going to see Gideon say, who? You know, who's he talking to? Oh, me. You know, Gideon probably feels like anything but a mighty man of valor. And in fact, he argues the point. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, please, sir. Uh, which is, is, can also be the word for Lord as he uses later, but it can be used as a direct address as a, as a polite reference like sir. Lord said, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Well, we just got the explanation uh, from the prophet that the Lord sent. Maybe Gideon wasn't there when the prophet spoke. He says, why is all this happening to us? Where all his wonderful deeds our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? That's what the prophet said. Gideon said, I'll get it. You know, we hear all these tales about how great the Lord is and all these wonderful things that he did, but we're certainly not seeing any of it here. Not much happening here on the uh, divine miracle front. Where are all his wondrous deeds? But now the Lord's forsaken us, given us into the hand of Midian. Wow. That's the Israelite perspective. Where is God? We hear all these great things about him. What's he done for us? He's abandoned us. Somebody needs to go back and listen to the prophet because Gideon didn't get the message, and it's very likely Israel didn't much get the message either. Because this whole point is the problem is with God. Yeah, we heard great stuff about this God. Where is he? He's abandoned. He's forsaken us. Just get, just left us to suffer at the hands of Midian. Interesting. We tend to be that way. 
you know, when we're suffering, where is God? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? You know, hear other people's needs say, God answered their prayer. God doesn't answer my prayers. Where is God? Maybe there's more going on you need to take, take a look at. But verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. I can't, where is this, this might? Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. There's the might. And he said to him, please, Lord, gone from sir to Lord, not the name, covenant name of God, uh, Yahweh, Lord, but Adonai, Lord. Please, Lord, maybe getting starting to think he's dealing with somebody more than just a human being here. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Much has been made of the similarity of the calling of Gideon with the call of Moses. It is very similar, although Moses is more extended. Uh, you, you have you have Gideon's reluctance. How can I'm I'm of this very weak family and a very weak clan? Why me? How can I possibly do this? The Lord's answer is the same to Gideon as it was to Moses. But the Lord said to him, "But I will be with you." End of argument. That's all the Lord needs to say. He doesn't say how he's going to do this. He just says, I will be with you. And that closes the case. It's over. That's his strength. That's his mind. That's what he said to Moses. I will be with you. When the Lord's with you, you don't need any other arguments. And he says, you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Verse 17, Gideon said to him, now, if I found favor in your eyes, and show me a sign that you who speaks to me. Please do not depart from here unless I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. Now, this is both oriental hospitality, and it's also a test. You know how Moses, Abraham was very quick to present a meal to the visitors who came to him. Well, Gideon is showing hospitality here despite the deprivation, despite the situation, but he's also doing it as a test. So Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and the eleven cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the eleven cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Ebiezrites. And so you get this this demonstration of grace. I mean, we, we start out there earlier with the Lord saying, you've not obeyed my voice. The, the sense is it's over. And the first thing is the Lord appears. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and calls this man who's in hiding, essentially, and says, I'm calling you to deliver Israel. Gideon's reluctant. The Lord says, I will be with you. And he demonstrates the, the reality of who he is, that this is the Lord who is speaking to him. 
But just God's grace in the face of sin, God had every right to abandon them, but he didn't. And uh, though they're suffering discipline, they're suffering the consequences of their idolatry and rebellion and sin, the Lord has not abandoned them, as Gideon says. In fact, Gideon is going to be the instrument by which he delivers them. So we get this reminder of the real need, a demonstration of the Lord's amazing grace, and then a strike against Israel's true enemy before they go after Midian. There's a little bit of in-house business that needs to be taken care of. The true enemy, not the Midianites. Baal, Asherah, Israel's dear idols. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Baal, of course, as we've talked about, is the Canaanite fertility god. Asherah was a female deity, his consort, uh, and they were looked to to provide the fruitfulness for the land, which uh, the Midianites were robbing them of. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Cut down the pole and use it for firewood. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told them. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. I like Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. Other other the Pharisees, the leaders who uh, the gospel tells us believed in Jesus but didn't want to tell anybody for fear of the Jews. Well, Gideon was bold enough to do the deed, but he did do it under cover of darkness because he was a little bit afraid of his own family and what they'd think and people of the town. So that's what he does. And lo and behold, verse 28, when the men of the town arose in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who's done this thing? And they come out and they find, they find their, their worship place vandalized. The place has been wrecked and another altar built, another bull offered. And so they ask about and inquire and someone says, well, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. The men of the town say to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. He's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Well, at this point, maybe Joash was just tolerating all this. Maybe he really had uh, come away from the dark side, or maybe he was just protecting his son. But he says something very shrewd. Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. If Baal's so mighty, he can take care of himself. Somebody broke down his altar, let Baal deal with it. Good advice. Men of the town can't say much to that. Verse 32, therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. God is going to use Gideon to deal with the Midianites. But first he uses Gideon to strike a blow against unbelief and paganism and idolatry within Israel. Uh, I, think there's a, I think there's an important analogy there uh, in the Christian life. Uh, you want to draw too tight a connection, and yet I think it is by analogy, uh, kind of parallel, that before the Lord can use us in the lives of others, he wants to do work in us. First, 
Now, that's not to say we have to be perfect before he can use us in the lives of others. Uh, but we do need to take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of a brother's eye. Uh, this is very illustrative of a principle. God wants to deal with Israel. The Midianites are a problem, but God is working with Israel. And the first thing that has to happen before they deal with Midian is deal with the problem in Israel. Now, there were a lot more Baal altars and Asherah poles in Israel besides these. But it was a step in the right direction. And it showed Gideon's commitment that he is on the Lord's side, that he's in deep now. He's destroyed a Baal altar. He's cut down the Asherah pole. The men of the town are very angry about it, and they want to put him to death. They want to execute Gideon for the destruction of Baal's worship center. So Gideon's committed. He's in. And he's also taken a step toward dealing with the problem in Israel, a strike against Israel's true enemy. We need to make sure we recognize who our true enemies are. Very often it's not out there, it's in here. And then finally, there's this call to arms against Israel's human oppressors. Beginning in verse 33, it starts with calling out the troops. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and people of these came together and they crossed the Jordan. Here we go again. They're coming in and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I love that statement. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That the Spirit of the Lord would clothe us. Clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Some of those, by the way, uh, in, uh, in chapter 5 were, were, were ones that did not help uh, in the fight uh, against Sisera. Uh, others did, but here he's calling them, Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, Manasseh, and they went up to meet him. So there's a calling out of the troops, but then one more time, there's a calling on the Lord. In a very well-known passage, a Sunday school favorite, uh, chapter 6, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. It was so. When he rose early the next morning, squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Gideon is getting ready to go to war. And his, his posture is a little bit like the man in the Gospels who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, because <laughs> he's about to go into battle. And the Lord has demonstrated that he is the Lord as he consumed that uh, offering, a hospitality that Gideon showed. But he just needs assurance that the Lord is going to give them victory. Uh, they, he hasn't misread things, that he's, that he's not misunderstanding the situation. And so he gives this double test uh, to let the fleece be wet, the ground dry, and then let the ground be dry all around, or wet all around, but the fleece remain dry. And the Lord very graciously accommodates 
his weakness, his need for assurance, his need for a sign. Now, it's hard to know what to make of that. You know, this is not a command saying that you should lay out the fleece literally or metaphorically when you're faced with something. Uh, think how much less light Gideon had than you do. You have the rest of the scriptures. You have the New Testament. You have the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant sense. Gideon had the Holy Spirit. He was clothed with the Holy Spirit. But he did have a whole lot less light than we did, and he needed some assurance here. He was about to lead Israel. And so God graciously acquiesces and patiently repeats this test to show that he is with the Lord. But it's also true that uh, we, we often struggle uh, with, with belief, with help my unbelief, just as Gideon did. And God stoops to accommodate our weakness. God does give us encouragements along the way. Um, we've seen that with our son at boot camp, how the Lord has put in encouragements along the way, least expected, not looked for times. Well, the Lord is very faithful just to encourage us that Caleb was going to be okay. And uh, he does that. Maybe as we grow in the Lord, he may do that less. may call on you to stand more on your two feet, trusting in him. Uh, as a more mature believer. But certainly for Gideon, and certainly for all of us in our weakness, where maybe young believers are just at a tough time, the Lord is faithful to encourage us and show us that he is with us and the battle is his. Of course, God went to war for us cross. And uh, we, don't, we don't have a fleece, but we do have other signs that the Lord gives to us just to remind us that he is for us, that the battle is ours. Uh, that, that sign we experience once a month is this table. It's the broken bread. It's the poured out cup that is the Lord's reminder that he not only will save Israel, he has saved Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for Gideon. Uh, Lord, uh, a man frustrated, a man even accusing you uh, in, his, in his discouragement, Lord, in what he saw and what he knew. And yet, Lord, as you exposed to him the real problem in Israel, which wasn't Midian but their sin, Lord, do that for us. Help us, Lord, to be more concerned with our own heart and our own reaction to things and our own submission to you and obedience to you and faith in you. Father, we do pray you would use us in great ways in the lives of people and in the world around us. Lord, in ways the world may not ever know about, but you do and we do. But, Father, we pray that above all you would be at work in our hearts to humble us, to shape us, to mold us, to make us what you would have us to be. And, Lord, we do believe but we pray you'll help our unbelief, just as you did Gideon. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.